Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. Would you go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy. The light of the world is Jesus. Jesus Christ, our living hope. He has broken every chain. It's all about Jesus. 1 John 3.16 God's life Changing Sun. If you pay much attention to news outlets today, you realize that perceptions can be drastically different regarding the same thing, event, or person, depending on how the facts are presented or misrepresented, as we've seen a lot the last two years. One of my favorite illustrations to... <laughs> demonstrate that, I know I've shared before, is about an amateur genealogical researcher who was researching his own family, and he went back and found out that his great-great-uncle, Remus Starr, was not a good guy. His great-uncle, Remus Starr, was lacking in character. He was hanged for horse-stealing and train robbery in Montana in 1889. The only known photograph of Remus shows him standing on the gallows (laughs) where he's about to be hanged for his crimes. And on the back of the picture is this inscription, and I want you to listen very carefully to every detail of this because this is what he first read about his great uncle. Remus Starr, horse thief, sent to Montana Territorial Prison, 1885, Escaped, 1887. Robbed the Montana Flyer six times. That was a train. Caught by Pinkerton detectives. Convicted and hanged, 1889. That was the tribute to his great uncle's life. So he decided he would help make it sound a little bit better while still being truthful. So he wrote of his great uncle Remus uh, this account. Remus Starr was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets, horses, and intimate dealings with the Montana Railroad. Beginning in 1885, he devoted several years of his life to service at a government facility. Prison. Finally taking leave, he escaped, to resume his dealings with the railroad. (laughs) In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. You have to admit it was basically technically true. But it still gave a very false impression. 
Have you noticed the varying perceptions today regarding Jesus? There are more widely varying perceptions about Jesus than there were even when I was growing up. Because our culture has gotten pretty messed up with some pretty messed up ideas. But Jesus is a huge figure in the pages of history. Huge in his impact, huge in his victory over sin and death. But also a huge target for those who are threatened by Jesus and who do not want to submit to his lordship. So there are a lot of people in our culture that want to take him down. So what do we know about Jesus? What has the Bible clearly taught us about him? What Bible verses really capture who he is and what he did? sent an email a couple days ago and asked some of you to respond to that. Got a few back. And some of you suggested these passages as ones that would capture who Jesus was. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Hebrews 1, verse 3. John 14, 6. Psalm 46, 10. And then Matthew 8, 23 to 27, where Jesus calms the storm. And they find out who he really was. Now, as I thought about that personally, I thought of some obvious ones like John 3, 16. Captures well who he was and what he did. John 1.29, where, John, uh, where uh, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I thought of the Acts 2 sermon, the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, which described what he did and his glorious resurrection. The Acts 13 sermon, which I think is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, because it says so much about all the Bible history and wraps it all up in Jesus. I thought of Matthew 16, Peter's declaration and confession. I thought of the angel's announcement in Luke 2. I even thought of God's word from heaven at Jesus' baptism, identifying him as his son. But I believe, as you will see, that there is one passage that is somewhat unfamiliar to many of you that captures so much of Jesus' person and ministry in a single verse. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and possibly was actually an early Christian song, a lot of Bible scholars believe. But I think it's important that you understand and we understand the context and background of 1 Timothy 3 to see why it says it where it says it. 2 Timothy, as, or, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's getting up in years, and uh, he wrote to a young preacher named Timothy offering practical guidance about ministry. And he warned Timothy about false teachers. He described how things ought to be done in the Lord's church. He talks about worship, leadership, benevolence, and all these things. But at the end of chapter 3, there is a pause, almost an interlude. It's as if Paul is saying, all right, hold on, hold on, time out. You know, I've been saying all this important stuff about the church and how, well, how we ought to do things and not do things and all that. But let's stop and remember why God established this church. And let's stop and remember why we worship. And let's remember why we do certain Christian things that we do. So he spends in these three verses, verses 14 through 16, talking about God's truth and God's church and God's Son. 
14 and 15, it says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We should have more time to talk about that one, but we kind of did last week. But then in verse 16, it's as if Paul was saying, all right, now let me tell you what matters more than anything else I've written. More than the stuff about worship, more than what I've said about elders and deacons, more than all the other stuff I've said. Here's the heart of it all, verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Wow. Jesus. What an overview of the person and life and ministry of Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul says, this is what matters, people. More than anything I've written before or after this. As you will see, my simple outline today, in the back of your bulletin, follows this verse, phrase by phrase, as we ask the question, so who is Jesus? First of all, Jesus was God in the flesh. God in the flesh. God appeared in a body. God was manifested in flesh. This is a very clear, consistent teaching of the Bible. And there are various religious groups today that will argue to the death against this idea that Jesus Christ, who came here, born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, is actually God. I want you to turn back to John, the Gospel of John, the first chapter. Again, one of the probably five or ten most important chapters in the Bible because of what it says about Jesus. John 1 begins in the beginning. It says, in the beginning was the Word. All right? It's capital W, and I want you to follow that word. The word, word, Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, whoever this Word is, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now it goes on and talks a little bit about John the Baptist pre preparing the way for this Word person. And then verse 14 begins to identify him. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 gets more specific. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Folks, it's very clear that the Word, whoever, whatever that is, is God. And the Word became flesh, and therefore God became flesh and took a human body for a while in this life just like us. 
He came as God the Son. I like how Max Lucado in his book years and years ago called God Came Near described this just to help us see that God actually became a human. He says, The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He, had been, he, had, he who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God did that. See, that's why Joseph was told, just after he'd been told what to name Jesus, Matthew 1.23, he's told the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Years ago, I clipped something. I might have even been on a Christmas card. I don't know. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was light coming into a world of darkness. He was love coming into a world of hate. He was life coming into a world of corruption. He was peace coming into a world of strife. He was bread coming into a world of hunger. He was water coming into a world of thirst. He was righteousness coming into a world of sin. He was hope coming into a world of defeat. He was God coming into a world of humanity. God came to save us by having a relationship with us and becoming one of us. Don't ever let that become ordinary. God becoming flesh was the foundation for all Jesus did. You know, there are many people today uh, that doubt the miracles Jesus performed. There are others who doubt his atoning death on the cross. There are people who doubt his bodily resurrection from the dead. But folks, once we accept the fact that God actually became flesh, then the rest of the miracles are easy to accept. Every single one of them. If we accept that God became flesh. And so is the fact that God is able to take care of my life and my circumstances and my heartaches. Because it's God with us. Are you scared? God with us. You have a problem at school? God with us. Have a mess going on at work right now? God with us. Have a financial worry? God with us. Health scare? Broken relationship? Difficult decision? God with us. God in the flesh. <laughs> Hallelujah. Can we just get a little bit excited about the fact that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, took a human body and became flesh. <laughs> he appeared in a body. God in the flesh. But look secondly at this truth about Jesus. Jesus is the one proven by the Holy Spirit. And this may be the most interesting or surprising of, of all the ones we have seen so far. It says he was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, justified 
in the spirit. That word vindicated or justified literally means it's dikaio, the Greek word, means to equip or declare righteous or prove to be right. In other words, the Holy Spirit affirmed who Jesus was. And that's important because there were many doubters about Jesus. People, you know, questioned Mary and Joseph's story before Jesus was born. When all of a sudden, Mary and Joseph, who are engaged, have not had the wedding ceremony yet, and Mary is visibly pregnant, and Joseph's saying, no, we haven't had sexual relations. God did this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Joe, good one, good one. The gossip and the mockery that had to have ensued. And then in John 1, if you're still there in verse 11, it says this about Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own nation, his own people did not accept him as the Messiah. And it's interesting in John chapter 7, when Jesus is getting ready to head to, to Jerusalem, somewhat of a controversial visit, his own half-brothers start saying sarcastic things about him going and, and do your little miracles in front of everybody there, Jesus. And then John 7, 5 says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. His own brothers did not believe he was who he said he was. And there's still plenty of doubters today. So among all those doubters, when Jesus was here and after he left, the Holy Spirit decided to provide much evidence <laughs> Much, much evidence. You see, the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' resurrection, among other things. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now notice this. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And some translations say, by the Spirit. All right, Romans 1, verse 4 says, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the spirit, he came back from the dead. And that means there's an amazing result for us. And Romans, again, in chapter 8, verse 11, says this to us. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So it's saying the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is working in your life if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. The spirit proved who Jesus was. But then also the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. I want you to go back to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Luke chapter 1. You know, the Holy Spirit gave us the Old Testament, and all through the Old Testament it pointed to Jesus. Well, Luke 1 tells an interesting story, and I know we looked at this a few weeks ago in a different context as we were talking about God and the unborn and his view of the unborn. Um, but we, we didn't talk at that point in Luke 1 about the Spirit's role in revealing Jesus to the yet-in-the-womb John the Baptist. This is intriguing. John 1, 39, Jesus is just a very newly conceived in the womb. He goes inside his mother to visit 
his mother's cousin, Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here's what I think is happening. I think at that moment that those two pregnant mothers met, that the Holy Spirit said to the baby inside Elizabeth, in other words, John the Baptist, look, there he is, there's the Messiah. And John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb. The first person to recognize the Messiah was an unborn child because the Holy Spirit pointed him out. Jesus later said in John 15, 26 that the Holy Spirit would testify about him. He said in John 16, 14, he will bring glory to me. So folks, something I think our culture today needs to hear and the American church needs to hear is the Holy Spirit should never be exalted above the Lord Jesus. Ever, 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 ever. Because all through Scripture, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is testifying about me. He's pointing people to me. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus is the one proven by the Holy Spirit. Last week we saw that the Holy Spirit gave us the New Testament. And guess what the New Testament does? It testifies about Jesus. Here's the third thing we learn about Jesus in this amazing verse, this amazing song. Jesus is the Lord of the angels. It says in the text that he was seen by angels. See, we hear a lot about angels in December. <laughs> And unfortunately, we don't talk about them enough the rest of the year, even though the Bible talks about them all through. A few of us even hang angels on our Christmas tree. Some of you put angels on top of your Christmas tree. But did you realize that angels, according to Scripture, also observe a whole lot of what's going on in your house all year long? Scripture tells us that. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says they watch us. Job 38, 4-7 says that they observe during God's creation of nature. Galatians 3 and Hebrews 2 says they help give the Old Testament law to us. Angels. So angels have seen a lot. They're not bound by time. So they've seen things century after century after century. But the angels were more than a little bit curious the night they gathered outside Bethlehem when God became flesh. I want you to turn to Luke 2, and uh, we're going to read that in a, in a little bit here. Um, you see, they had seen, the angels had seen Jesus, and they had seen all these things through the ages, but they had not understood. See, they had watched God's long, detailed plan unfold. They had seen the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, they made many appearances down through the ages. Matter of fact, the angel Gabriel that appeared to Zechariah and Mary had also appeared to Daniel 600 years before, the same exact angel. But apparently they had simply followed God's orders, but they didn't fully understand the whole story. Matter of fact, there's an interesting reference in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, where it talks about how the prophets 
you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, didn't even realize all that they were saying. They were just simply writing down what God told them to. And it says this, It was revealed to them that, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, the angels helped convey some of this stuff and really had no clue what some of it meant. They had seen but had not understood. But here's something else about the angels. Jesus was their master in heaven. Jesus was their master in heaven. Hebrews 1 verses 3 through 6, says this about Jesus in relation to the angels. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have become your Father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels had worshipped Jesus in heaven throughout the ages. He was their king. He was their boss. He was the exalted one. So imagine that night in Bethlehem. Imagine that their exalted Lord had become a tiny, dependent baby. And I suspect that in Luke 2, in that account, before they make their big announcement, the angels are looking and saying, God, what in the world are you doing? That's our Lord, our Master, that's become a little baby. Doesn't he realize they're going to mistreat him? They announced to the shepherds what they were told to say, but they still must have been a bit baffled. And then over the next 30 years, they were with Jesus when he was tempted. The Bible tells us specifically. They were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were at the empty tomb. They were at his ascension. But only after all, after all that could they and we really understand it all. See, the angels were amazed that Jesus, their master, would do all that for us. And I think the angels today are amazed about something else. And this is kind of sad. I think the angels today are amazed that you and I are not as amazed as we ought to be. We take the story for granted. Yeah, Jesus came here. He died on the cross, force rose again. Now we go to heaven. Grace, you know. The angels are saying, you've lost your amazement. You've lost the wonder of that. Don't you get it? But that's why Luke 15 says that the angels rejoice when a person repents and comes back to God because they've seen the whole picture now. They've seen heaven. They've seen human sin and its terrible consequences. They know how far Jesus came to rescue us. And they know how amazing 1 Timothy 3.16 is. Jesus is Lord of the angels and the angels want us to know him like they do. Here's the fourth thing about Jesus. Jesus is the heart of preaching. And yes, I'm going to get to Luke 2 in just a second. It says he was preached among the nations. See, that started right after Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 2, we have the first preachers. 
And there were angels. Verse 10 and 11, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Well, the next preachers we see a few verses later, and it's the shepherds in verse 16. It says, They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Then, you go down a little bit, a few days later, also in Luke 2, and another early preacher named Simeon. In verse 26, it says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 28 and following, Simeon took him, baby Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for Gentile, revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the, your people Israel. Then we have a lady named Anna, a prophetess, in verse 38, who says, it says, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, it was all about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Same thing in the book of Acts, it's all about Jesus. Same thing in the epistles, it's all about Jesus. Same thing in the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus, even though it calls him the lamb there. No wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. He's saying we may talk about other things, we may include other things in our lessons and sermons, but we preach Christ crucified. See, we can preach a lot of wonderful, inspirational things from the Bible, but ultimately, it's about Jesus. And that message is for all peoples. It says he was preached among the nations. That means we tell the news in Decatur and in New York City and in Baghdad and in North Korea, even if there are negative reactions. There are a lot of people who you personally know who don't know very much about Jesus, and God is counting on you personally to make sure that person learns more. And many will accept that message. The fifth thing about Jesus is that Jesus is the center of our faith. It says he is believed on in the world, the result of their preaching. Two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of the series at John 3:16 and also 17 and 18, which say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Folks, over the last 2,000 years, people all over the world have believed who Jesus is and what he did, and their lives have been changed. In other words, we believe what Jesus said about himself. And here's some things he said about himself. He said, I am the truth. He said, I am the life. He said, I am the resurrection. He said, I and the Father are one. He, says, I, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
He said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He also said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. He also said, yes, I am coming soon. And he also said, I will be with you always. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you believe it enough to follow him in a culture that's not following him? And do you believe it enough to stand up for him in a culture that's not following him? There's a final thing about Jesus in this text. We ignore this part of Jesus' life too much. Jesus is the ascended Lord. It says he was taken up in glory. Luke 24 tells that account. Mark 16 tells that account. Acts 1 tells that account. The angels were there. But Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, describes the magnitude of Jesus ascending back to heaven. It says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the ascension. All right? Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's not exactly a tiny, helpless, dependent baby anymore. Jesus was humiliated and killed, but God raised him up in glorious victory and 40 days later brought him back to heaven dramatically up into the sky. Took him to heaven where he is now interceding for us, Hebrews tells us, and where he is preparing a place for those who follow and serve him in this life. He's preparing a home for us if we follow him. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This poem, I think, describes it well. The babe of Bethlehem. Who is this babe of Bethlehem that angels herald his birth? Who is this child that comes to walk among the men of earth? Who is this babe that shepherds seek his lowly place of birth, that wise men travel far to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Who is this child who grows to be a man of renowned fame, that kings and rulers tremble at the mention of his name? Who is this man condemned to die and nailed to a tree? I'm told that he died there willingly for me. Who is this man who doesn't have a grave to lay his head? They place him in a borrowed tomb and giving up, give him up for dead. But when I look into that tomb and there's no trace of him, it's then I know the mystery of the babe of Bethlehem. Is that who you're following? That Jesus that appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Is that who you're following? <clears throat> Kevin Hall and I used to change newsletters from our uh, churches. He was preaching up north of Columbus at the time in Alexandria. One of my favorite newsletter columns he wrote was a true story about his wife, Denise, and his son, Brandon. He had an experience with a school group that provides a, an awesome spiritual parallel. Denise, his wife, was chaperoning Brandon's sixth grade field trip to a corn maze at Lynn's Fruit Farm in Pataskala, Ohio. Remember that name, Lynn's 
fruit farm. Well, after a while in the corn maze, as some of you know, if you've done those, uh, they were hopelessly lost. So here's Kevin's wife and leading a bunch of these kids around, sixth graders, they're hopelessly lost, in spite of the fact that some of them had just been there the week before. <laughs> but fortunately, Brandon, at one point in their desperation, saw one of his friends walk by. And he tugged on Denise's sleeve, and Brandon said, Hey, Mom, that was Isaac. Isaac and Brandon had attended uh, story time together as toddlers and had played at Isaac's house. Isaac's last name is Lind. His dad had built the corn maze. <laughs> so Brandon called out, Hey, Isaac, can you get us out of here? <laughs> Isaac re responded with confidence, Sure, follow me. So the little group began a new journey down twists and turns they had already taken. After a while, Isaac stopped. He was not lost, but his way was blocked by a larger group of kids and parents. Denise stepped up to the front and asked politely, excuse me, can we get through here? The other parents said, oh no, you don't want to go this way. We've been this way and it's a bunch of circles. Denise motioned toward Isaac and said, uh, that may be, but we're following him. Confused, the others asked, who's he? She said, he's Isaac, the son. His family built the maze. Said, that changed everything. And so the crowd asked, can we go with you? It wasn't long until Isaac had led the entire group safely out. <laughs> Kevin concluded his article with this powerful observation. He said, I don't know what errand Isaac might have been on originally, but I'm glad my son knew him, and I'm glad he was willing to take the time to lead my family home. You see, we do know what errand God's son was on when he came here to dwell among us. We know exactly why he came. He came to lead us home. But the question is, are you following him? He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And he wants you, he wants you to join him up in glory. You are the reason he came, so he could take you to glory. So the question at the bottom of your page, as we prepare to sing our song of decision, is simply, what will you do? What will you do about Jesus? I don't think sometimes we put enough emphasis anymore on doing. <laughs> See, our believing has to lead to doing. We have to respond. We have to do something. And doing something means we believe in Jesus. We believe all these things we've been saying. We believe 1 Timothy 3.16, all six phrases of it. We believe that is historic fact. We, we believe that he is the only one that can take away our sins. It means also that we believe it enough that we're willing to say that. We confess that. It means we believe it enough that we're going to live his way and do it his uh, let him be our boss in our life, the one that calls all the shots. It's what repentance is all about. We demonstrate that when we say, I'm going to die to my old life, and, and we bury our lives in, in the, the submissive, beautiful, incredible, God-ordained act of baptism. Say, old life's now gone. I belong to Jesus, and I'm following him home faithfully. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you need to 
recommit to that. Maybe people that you work with and go to school with don't really realize how much you know Jesus because you don't always live like him. This is a time when each of us looks inside our heart and our soul and we recommit ourselves or commit ourselves the first time to following Jesus home. Let's do that this morning. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.